Hello. This episode of the Future Natures podcast is a conversation with Jansu Sunmez. She's a doctoral student at the Gran Sasso Science Institute in L'Aquila, Italy. Jansu has been researching people's responses to large infrastructure projects like dams and railways that disrupt their lives and the spaces where they live. In the last two years, most of the old town of Hasankeyf in Turkey has been flooded after a new dam was built across the River Tigris to provide irrigation and hydroelectric power. Alongside people's houses, Hasankeyf was home to many historic monuments and places of cultural significance. The region around the town is also considered among the least developed parts of Turkey, and it has a history of conflict including struggles between Kurdish people and the Turkish state. Jansu also told me about her research in the Susa Valley in northern Italy, where local people and their allies are protesting against a new high-speed rail link, the TAV, or TAV, which threatens to pollute and disrupt the local environment. We talked about what people are doing to respond to the threat and the disappointments of grand construction projects and the legacies they leave behind. We also discussed the ambivalent feelings that people have in these places and the possibilities of care, hope and resistance. I started our conversation by asking Chansu about what she saw when she visited the old town of Hasankeyf in Turkey for the first time. And what, what was it like when you went there for the first time? What was going on at that point? The dam was already done. The construction was already done. The first operation uh, of the dam started uh, 2020 in May. But before, obviously, uh, people, the, the situation I would describe, you know, after an earthquake, what, what, what you can see in a city. Imagine a disaster, what you can possibly see in a place. It is mostly the same. It's, and it has mostly uh, the same feelings, you know, for me, like seeing the city like that. Because I've seen empty houses, you know, people left. Obviously, they have to leave their houses and evictions already started uh, in the early 2020. However, some people, a few families, like maybe 10, 15 families, were still in their houses and they were telling me, I have nowhere to go. I don't know where to go uh, because these people... um, they didn't meet the compensation criteria uh, to be resettled in the new town. Right. Um, so that, yeah, that's the reason um, they were telling me we don't know where to go. So I stay here until the uh, the water comes into my uh, my bedroom. You know. Wow. Uh, okay. These kind of stories, and then after I heard that um, after of obviously the pandemic came, you know pandemic restrictions came and then I had to leave uh, and I, I heard that after uh, some of these people were being le- relocated by by this uh, government and it's uh, just to set the scene so that uh, the Turkish government built uh, a new town kind of up the hill from the old Hassan Cape and some people were able to resettle into the new town um, is that right yeah. And but but not everybody kind of got a place. Yeah, and unfortunately, 
Yeah, it happened like that. I mean, it's because uh, the settlement law requires um, some criteria for people they need to meet. And the, the first thing is being having a family status, like you need to have a family. I mean, you need to be married. And this marriage has to be done before 2013, if I'm not wrong. Right. And of course, it's not free, by the way. Resettlement houses is uh, they still need to pay, but after five years, they they are going to pay off after the the first five years of the resettlement. So, yeah, very big disruption to people's lives. And I just wondered, it, sort of, what was what were the different reactions that you uh, noticed among people that you talked to? Yeah, there were different reactions, different emotions. Um, some people were happy that they they have been resettled because they uh, have they have a I mean at the moment nicer, uh, comfortable, bigger houses that they didn't have before. Uh, because the all my participant participants acknowledge the fact that uh, old houses were not really livable you know i i i heard stories like um there is a family just one room in a they, they have kitchen in the room they have you know uh, they are sleeping in the room the room functions also as a living room not just bedroom so it's just you know uh, it's a very uh, small small houses uh, and the toilet used to be outside they need to go outside uh, but they used to have a garden. They uh, used to have animals that they for the livestock, you know. And so they have uh, these very, you know, intimate connections with each other's, of course. Uh, but the fact is, of course, I mean, uh, the houses, the house conditions were not so uh, good. But the reason for uh, of this is Hassan Cave was a conservation area. Uh, it this was claimed in 1920s and sorry 1980s uh so that means you cannot you cannot reconstruct your house you cannot rebuild you cannot invest in your house uh, so this is this is a constraint you know this is what people are waiting let's say all these years uh because the because the dam gives a promise, a promise to have a better life in the in after the dam. But before they have to, you know, live in these conditions. The only uh, condition to get a better house is after the dam being built. So this is the, the feeling like uh, people uh, waiting in that, you know, limbo is a kind of like dead end, let's say there is like they cannot escape, they cannot do anything in that in that moment, in that mood. Also, feeling you know trapped in that in that uh, conditions. Right, uh, so they con felt like they they in order to get a better house, they had to accept the dam being built. Exactly, exactly. So, so this is the maybe main reason some of some of my participants were really happy to you know to be able to live in a better housing conditions right uh, but yeah this is something also ambivalent and uh, in my also thesis i 
I uh, discuss about this uh, and the people have ambivalent experiences because what happens, uh, even though they are happy with the new housing conditions in the resettlement town, they still have something missing, you know. They feel like they are lack of something which are and cannot be fulfilled in the resettlement conditions. And this where I think we we talk about a sense of place, place attachment and emotions that uh, occur in, in relation with the space and effective experiences with the space. So these are so things that cannot be compensated for people. Yeah, this is sometimes, you know, putting put people in a in a happy condition but also in a sad condition let's say sad uh, mood uh, so this is like ambivalence and people uh, has have to go through these ambivalent experiences every day in everyday practices and also another important thing i should mention about ambivalence is is related to historical artifacts and their relocation so when we talk about indigenous communities, uh, I mean, uh, like Kurdish, Arab communities, Assyrian communities, Christian communities, they're all indigenous communities. Um, so they have their own ways to do something. Their own ways to practice making a space, you know. So uh, during my research, I acknowledge these indigenous ways of doing things and practices. So cultural heritage are very important for people's everyday life. It is uh, something beyond just historical artifact. Because for tourists, it's just a tomb of a religious person um, or ruins, you know, Roman ruins for a tourist. It, it has a value of uh, cultural value for tourists to see and understand the culture and history is great thing. Uh, but for indigenous people, for people living there, it's beyond the, the cultural and historical meaning. Because people, um, generations by generations, they create strong um, attachments with, with the tomb. And one of the examples is um, Zainabe tomb, for instance or Imam Abdullah, these are uh, important uh, Islamic figures, let's say. Yeah, and people uh, create a strong relations with this tomb. For instance, uh, I mean, uh, one of my participants were telling me that uh, these, all, these historical artifacts are not just, you know, historical monuments or something like material, you know. Uh, these used to be my friends. I used to go, you know, around the Zainal Beitum, the green area around Zainal Beitum, and I used to play hide and seek. And he told me uh, when I, you know, losing him, yeah. uh, when I see that Zainal Beitum was relocated, as if I felt I lost my friends, I lost my close childhood friends. Right. Yeah. So, so, it's, so it's not just. They're, they're sacred, they're kind of sacred and religiously important places, but they're also places where people used to just be and hang out as children or so there were exactly. memories associated 
So those places have been like some of those have been moved, right? So they've moved the actual yeah, yeah. of the thing, but but yeah. it's been moved to a different piece of land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Something's been lost in the process. Some of them, uh, like seven or eight of them, were only relocated into the new town, and um, yeah, this is something like I call uh, this interaction, this emotional, strong emotional attachments. To the ancestral um, history, cultural practices, and knowledge. Um, so I call this interaction uh, like indigenous um, social infrastructures. In the literature of social infrastructure, uh, it functions. I mean, we see that social infrastructures they they function as you know uh, bringing people into the public space. Uh, create connections, create uh, community relations, conviviality of a city life. So mm-hmm. social infrastructures function in, in this way, as Eric Klinenberg uh, mentions the, like widely, comprehensively in his book in 2018. Uh, and I saw that, I uh, understand that these um, historical artifacts are just indigenous social infrastructures that uh, create people uh, for a space to get together, uh, spend time, socialize, uh, foster community relations, uh, networks. So these are very important for everyday life of, of indigenous people. Beyond the cultural heritage, beyond the historical artifacts, beyond the values, historical and cultural values. I think we need to see uh, and understand their everyday value as well. I just wanted, yeah. I, I I just want to come back to something that you mentioned before that you were saying that people experience this ambivalence in their everyday practices. Um, that people are, are sort of continually living with this sense of both being happy that they've got somewhere yeah. maybe nicer to live in a practical way, but also regretting or missing or grieving for something that's been lost how how does that sort of manifest in the everyday life of people there yeah it manifests in many ways to be honest in many ways even just living in in that resettlement house is enough for for that i think because even for even like living in the house like just sleeping and waking up in in the other day so it's just um this is more than enough i think <laughs> but i i can also give example yeah tandur owens let me give you an example about tandur owens so tandur is a, a ethnic oven let's say is very uh, common in the eastern part of turkey and also middle east and is a it, it has a particular shape and particular structure to work and most women in in the old town, the, in Old Hasan Cave, they used to have their own tandoor ovens inside their residential gardens or outside. And tandoor ovens function in many ways for women, especially uh, they is, is a kind of everyday practice. They cook uh, bread inside. They also cook food, other food inside. But also, tandoor functions as a 
for women as a way of uh, social socializing with other women because they invite other women uh, something to make to cook something in 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 the tandoor ovens so this is a kind of i think a very important uh, and i um, consider it a infrastructure social infrastructure because of these functions it carries ancestral knowledge uh, it has a cultural uh, and historical uh, value for people uh, but also women are strongly also emotionally attached tandoor ovens so are and, they like ovens that are what's the fuel is it like charcoal um wood burning uh, yeah, inside, like... yeah. yeah inside they they put some wood and then they um burn inside so uh why i g- gave this example because in the resettlement town they i mean the settlement law prohibits people to construct a tandoor in their residential gardens um so most of women felt like super uncomfortable about the about like lacking a tandoor oven um one of my participants she told me that i came here i started to buy my bread from the market the first time in my life the first time and she she is a, a 50s in 50 years old 55 um and then she told me after uh, i didn't like it i mean i cannot eat uh, a bread for uh, that i cannot buy it from outside i cannot eat it then i start to cook, cook in in my oven inside my house but the oven is general modern oven that we all have in our houses uh, and she told me still i uh, it feels so strange to me i don't want to eat my, this this bread even and um, however there are just, I think, maybe four or five tandoor ovens um, in the whole city. <laughs> and obviously, this is not enough because also this is not practical for women whose their houses are far away from the tandoor ovens. So uh, she told me, I cannot carry everything. Uh, I don't have a car. I cannot, you know, walk the, uh, the tandoor oven. It's too far away from me. But still, I, I, I try. I manage with my children. And then, so we see that uh, they try to keep up the keep up the tradition, keep up the the habits they used to have. And some women, even though this is inf- uh, not legal, you know, this was prohibited in the by the law, you know. Uh, some women, some families, they they reconstructed tandoor ovens in their residential gardens. So this is informal construction, and they start making they start making bread in in the in the tandoor in their own place but the point is people told me like yeah it's they don't allow uh, constructing tandoor but we cannot live without that yeah. Yeah. so like you know this attachment to their um ancestral uh, heritage and ancestral uh, you know keep up the ancestral knowledge and practice practice it every day uh, and on the other hand, so this is where ambivalence comes, I think. On the other hand, some woman uh, told me, oh, well, I mean, yeah, Tandor was good. I 
I mean, I I was, you know, uh, enjoying eating tandoor bread in the old town is a culture uh, for us is important uh, for us to eat every day, you know, cook every day in tandoor and so on. But she told me, like, we were actually outside, we were sitting in her garden and she told me that I don't like the smell. You, you, you feel the smell of bread right now? She asked me and I said, yes. And she told me, I don't like it anymore, this this smell. It feels strange to me because we are in a new place. Uh, we are in a new city. And, it, and I said, why? I mean, why? I mean, you grow up uh, with thunder. And she said, yes, I know. But it, it just, you know, annoys me because, I mean, it's, it's a different place, she told me. Right. So, yeah. It was a common place in Hassan Cave, and everybody has it. She told me everybody used to have thunder, so everybody was okay with that. But now, not everybody has thunder, and that, so so, that feels kind of weird. Yeah, it feels because, kind of because of the new. Yeah, the, the urban places. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's. Um, so these stories are telling us important. Uh, things about uh, people's everyday effect, effective experiences, I would say, because they are emotionally also attached, and uh, it's not only cooking there. the The point is not to cook there. The point is uh, to be themselves. So it is, I think, is what uh, the colonial scholars underline always: the self determination. I, I. Um, consider this a way of, you know, seeking for a self-determination and uh, for their lives, to be able to make their own choices, to be uh, to be able to have a power. They are capable of doing that and they show it somehow, right. uh, even though the law doesn't allow them to do so. Um, so they they still seek for, you know, creating their own life life worlds, let's say. Um, yes, <laughs> well, that's fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah, and it, it kind of speaks to the way that people value everyday things in a way that it 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 can't be be exactly measured, or it can't be can't be just substituted, replaced by something else. Yeah, as connections to people's sort of communal life and people's sort of memories and the wet the, the things that they've learned growing up and and their experience to place so it's a kind of all connected it's very it's, it's interesting to think about that and then just moving people to a different place even though it's just up the road you can you know maybe have a nicer house but you're losing something in the process it's also i think interesting to see the urban uh, redevelopment practices and how these practices diminish this um, local ways of life, you know, ways of doing things and the knowledges uh, and everyday practices. Because in, in this general urban planning, general urban redevelopment plans, it tends to, you know, push people in a, let's say, modern way of life without considering pre-existing ways of life. And... Obviously, people feel, you know, paradoxical sometimes. 
people feeling in the, in this ambivalent uh, atmosphere. So this is what I I think uh, if I some if if I need to you know uh, recommend something this would be you know the the biggest recommendation of, of my research like considering the the pre existing social uh, bond social. Um, relations with infrastructures the social infrastructures what is important for pe- for for people's culture i mean in everyday life because at the end uh everyday life makes a whole life uh i think <laughs> so like small steps create a big picture right create a big um let's say movement when you take small steps at the end of the day right you have a big movement so this needs to be considered uh because it's not a one size fits all mm. it 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 can never be like that it can happen in other parts of the world definitely and it happening it's happening um in latin america in the most of the you know um, asians uh, south asian countries uh, that are trying to building this mega projects mega dams but i think the problem the issue is not embracing the modernity or technology i think the problem is hegemonically like uh, pushing people in in a framework in in a life in a certain way of life that putting them in a let's say iron cage in weberian term in an iron cage and push them to you know live in a certain way there is no issue like there is no problem living in modern life adapting modern life technology using technology but the issue is you just you know brutally let's say ask people to forget their past to forget their mm, this indigenous uh, intergenerational knowledges that have accumulated so far So this is the problem I think. This is the problem. You ask them through these projects, you ask them, you force them actually, you force them uh, to forget their roots, where they come from and uh, what they have learned so far, how they have been growing up so far, uh, what kind of interactions, neighborly relations uh, they have, you know, created and uh, the the value of the space i i think this this is the this is the this is the issue in, in hassan cave and also in other parts of the world the, the, and the, the, the ultimate symbol of that is literally that your your old houses you know is covered in in water it it, it disappears under mm-hmm. un, under the water and it, you can't even see it anymore um it must be uh yeah it's a very s- strange experience for people um yeah it's that feeling of kind of being being pushed and really having no choice exactly because most people uh told me like if i had better option i would do that but i have been left no options no option than living in a resettlement town or migrate to inner uh, city or other cities uh, surroundings and can we talk a bit about the other 
area you worked, the research that you did in Italy, this high-speed railway project in between the city of Lyon in France and the city of Turin in, in northern Italy has been a, a project that's been underway for a number of years, crossing the border, crossing the very back mountainous border to create a faster link between the two cities. The the justification for the project is to is kind of um saving carbon emissions, cutting down on the amount of goods that have to be carried by lorries and and speeding up the, the connection. Um, but uh, you were working in looking at, in particular at a valley in, in northern Italy uh, where people were protesting against this project. And some people were very um, angry about the project and um, mounting sort of public campaign against it. I wondered what you what you found there. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the project is called Turin Lyon High Speed Railway Project, and since nineteen nineties, it has been a you know an issue uh, in 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 the Italian public. It's always been a controversial topic, and when it's finished, uh, it will be the you know biggest uh, train um, you know train line railway line in in Europe. No, even in the world, I think. Right, if I'm not wrong, even in the world. So it's another uh, very big, uh, very enormous project uh, we are talking about, but in a different geography now we are, uh, which is in Northwest Italy, uh, which is in Europe. So, uh, and it's interesting to see, uh, I think, in a, in a more democratic country, right? I see when I, you know, finish my fieldwork, in the Sousa Valley, Val di Sousa, I realized that the same things are going on also here. Obviously, there are some differences. There are maybe huge differences sometimes uh, between, you know, the grassroots resistance or the, let's say, the colonization, I would say. Uh, there are differences, but what people go through is more or less the same, and even emotions. So I I found similar patterns both in Hassan Kif and in the in the Valley Suza Valley. So the first thing I consider this case as a as a as a way of uh, infrastructural colonialism is a type of internal colonialism, let's say. So right now we are not talking about um, a traditional conventional understanding of colonialism, historical colonialism, which is, for instance, Britain colonizes India or, you know, this uh, historical understanding or Turkey colonizes uh, Cyprus. Uh, this, so this is not something like that. We are talking about different dynamics. So in, in, in the Suza Valley context, actually the grassroots movement started first as a, as a movement uh, of not in my backyard, uh, but then uh, in time it changes towards. I mean, it changed towards in a more trans transnational movement. And when I went there in two thousand twenty one, it was a summer time. There were lots of people from around the world that support this movement from Cuba, from also uh, Kurdish region. In, from in Turkey, in Syria, you know. Uh, so they all the people coming uh, from 
pe- people coming from other countries to, yeah, to countries. North West Italy to Susa Valley. Yeah, and other. Yeah. Yeah, but the most important thing to uh, I think to underline is these people are co- coming from in regions that are also contested, that are also exploited by a, a project and an infrastructure project or development project. So they actually share the same same pain in, in a sense, you know, they they share this same same feelings. So they have a they have this um, a common solidarity. They have a very strong solidarity uh, among each other. And also, it happened also in Hassan Cave, like so, uh, some of the Amazonian um, indigenous communities. They got in touch uh, with Hassan Cave communities. I think against the Bela, Bela Monte Dam in Brazil, if I'm not if I remember correctly. So. We have to see that these um, movements who suffer from the same, more or less the same problems, same extractivist projects, they create uh, strong solidarities across borders. And it is something also about caring. So care is an effective labor in a, in a sense. You care about the other that you don't know about his back, uh, his or her background, uh, you know, culture or country, language, but you have a common ground because you both, you know, fight for the same problems at the end, militarization, you know, forced uh, evictions or uh, he, uh, violation of human rights, environmental problems, environmental destruction. So, yeah, I I think this is something we need to um yeah consider. I mean, I considered in my research. That's really uh, fascinating. That that the idea that people could sort of get in touch from from the Amazon, um, even though the context is really really different, but there's some some sense of you know wanting to defend and wanting to you know value something that's there. I mean, just just to, just to sort of be clear about what's happening in for people in the Sousa Valley, you know, they're building a massive railway line through the valley, right? So earthworks and, and construction and the loss loss of nature, habitats, and uh, potentially pollution as well from from the construction project. And it, exactly I suppose people are objecting to the noise, noise of the railway or noise of the noise of the building site as well. Are there, are there kind of homes that are threatened? Are people kind of threatened with having to move away or is, is that not, not the case in this one? Just a few of them, as I know, and they need to be displaced soon. Uh, and of course, they don't know what to do. I mean, that time in 2021, that time uh, they didn't know what to do, where to go. They were not informed well, they told me. But another important thing about yeah people's uh, resistance in the valley are are something is very very strong, and the ecological destruction is the I think the main one of the biggest uh, controversial topics in, in the valley, and not only ecological destruction, uh, but also the the issue of pollution 
but this issue of pollution goes beyond just the pollution. It about it's it's about health issue. Uh, there's a high chance of uh, high chance that uh, these uh, cons- during the construction, you know, they need to is 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 an enormous construction, and they need to get into the mountains. So and this may create possibly asbestos or other chemicals to be released into the air, and this uh, obviously will reduce the quality of life. Uh, of people living there and also animals also plants i mean in general the ecosystem and also micro dust issue uh this is something also annoying people in a, in their everyday life and uh, because i remember when i went to house of one of my participants she was in she's an old um lady in 70s i think She's been living in the in the same house since she was born. And the lady told me uh, that, yeah, I mean, we need, of, of course, infrastructures, for instance, a 32 motorway uh, that was, you know, doing the connection uh, between other regions and other cities uh, in the Valais. Uh, he, she told me, yes, of course, we need these connections, but it's just, you know, uh, decrease the quality of life uh, in my garden. Uh, before the the motorway, I used to you know go to the uh, river riverside. I can you know even drink the water from there. But now it's not even possible because of the motorway. So I see. Uh, she told me I witnessed this pollution, this you know uh, harmful effects of infrastructures. And now I'm, of course, suspicious and worried about the the future uh, infrastructural projects that will, you know, be happening in in the valley. So obviously, people have, um, you know, hesitant and worried, and they have they are very right about worrying or on this matter. So this is, I think, very important because um, I should say that. Now, Susa Valley, the, the Piedmont region, in, in the Piedmont region of Italy, it's a bit, you know, um, also peripheral. Because when you think about north north of Italy, you always, you know, uh, assume maybe uh, north of Italy is the most developed, you know, parts of Italy compared to south. But not always. When we consider, you know, this peripheral and rural areas, and in Italian literature, it's called inner area. Uh, and the problems of inner area is always associated with marginalization, lack of employment, uh, you know, opportunities, and then uh, out migration. People tend to, you know, especially young generations tend to migrate outside um, their uh, villages and uh, inner areas uh, to the bigger cities, for instance, Turin, Milan, uh, Bergamo, uh, I mean, I should say these are very important industrial um, industrial cities and a lot of trade activities uh, was, you know, centered in these big cities. But um, when it comes to the, you know, uh, when you go away from the core, let's say core, what, I'm, what I mean is the, in Milan or Turin, when you go away from that, you see the another reality. You see another reality that people has to encounter, let's say. 
which is related to these peripheral conditions. Uh, the, the, these infrastructures that has been built before uh, in the valley, uh, there are, for instance, many dam pro many dams uh, currently uh, working in the valley, and then there are you know uh, motorways, highways, and then there is an Olympic uh, stadium that was constructed for the Turin Olympics in 2011, I guess. Um, it's, it has been left abandoned and no, it has no function at all at the moment. So people witness uh, this, you know, uh, disappointed uh, the investments that has been going on in the Valley uh, by the state or by the EU or uh, is more or less the same. Uh, graveyard of this kind of this haunted by all these past projects that were promised yeah, promised. <laughs> and then they're kind of left to rot. Yeah. Uh, but the people are still having to live their lives around these around yeah. these, these things that have been built, right? Yeah, one of the dams in, in near Venos, uh, Venos settlement, uh, yeah, one of the dams, it has to pay every year a, a certain amount of uh, money, monetary compensation to the people, to the municipality. Why? Because it produces obviously harmful, uh, you know, effects, harmful uh, po uh, air pollution, and uh, like devaluing uh, the life, the quality of life. So this is uh, like the dam try it tries to you know uh, to recover, let's say, and people see that these are just you know disappointing at at some point. Because one of my participants, he told me that what are they what are they going to do here? They come, they they will come here, they just get whatever they want to get, and they will forget us. Because whatever they do here is not uh, that we want them to do. We don't demand because we don't need the this kind of practices in our valley. So so it is again like you know an illusion that we see that the how this internal colonization works within EU. So we need to see this you know dynamics internal dynamics that what kind of region sacrifices for what kind of goals within EU. Uh, so th this is controversial. Uh, and yeah, I was um, telling you the my participant uh, quote. So he told me we will be forgotten, and I I really like the the concept, for instance, of uh, Jean Moore. Um, he, he she's a decolonial uh, scholar, uh, geographer. Uh, she uses uh, the, this. Um, the, the the conceptualizes as the you know forgotten places as forgotten places okay. is forgotten because uh you know global capitalism will be there and then uh, try to extract the resources local resources without you know considering what people or the environment need in that particular place and then it will be forgotten yeah so and this is a, also a, a process, as she calls Jean Moore, she calls the, is the process is organized abandonment. 
It includes like colonization, neo-colonization, environmental degradation, land grabbings, uh, um, and then uh, expropriations, you know, all these uh, tools are contributing this organized abandonment, abandonment of, of these regions, of these peripheral, peripheral regions. I mean, that also kind of raises the question of like, forgotten by whom? And so, exactly, yeah, you're right. but maybe they're not forgotten by everybody. And yeah. in some of those places, people still live or that or they or even if they have to move away, they remember remember those those places and the the other term that you use which I, I haven't heard before this idea of organized abandonment again perhaps these places aren't fully abandoned or something is built and then it's abandoned but then people sort of still have to carry on their their lives around it i mean to you so but the people in the um in the Sousa valley do you get the sense that they are are they hopeful of being able to win this battle? How do they feel about the future? So it's again, I think the this is something ambivalent, I would say. Again, ambivalent feelings. Let me give an example for the, to clarify it better, maybe. So I mentioned the the forgottenness, and I mentioned about my participant and what he said uh, about this. And we can I, I, we can understand that he has this fear of being forgotten, you know, because uh, they are explicitly also told me like I, I'm fear of my I, I fear afraid for my future. I'm afraid. We don't know what it will be, and I want to you know continue my life in the valley. I don't want to migrate. And she, he was a young person, by the way. He was a university student. And he was studying architecture. And he told me, uh, he wants to obviously stay in the valley, but he told me uh, my my elder brother left because of this uh, conflicts, but I want to, I want to stay in the valley and I want to, you know, see my future here, but I just see, you know, nothing. I mean, I have no hope about my future. Sometimes he told me, uh, but at the same time, they are doing something. They are taking some actions to create this hope, the to feel in this hopeful condition, you know, um, and to create their own hope, their own kind of future. So this is something uh, very important, and this is something reflect manifest in 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 the space in in the valley. It's not something only you know emotional, but also. In in material terms, I, I I can say. So, one of the very nice examples, great examples, is the Campo della Memoria, which is can be translated field of memory. So this is a a place that they created to keep to save memories about uh, about Valle, and uh, to you know preserve the culture and history. And I just now opened a quote from the the activist uh, that he was engaged in this, uh, you know, the construction of the field of memory. And I want to uh, read this, uh, what he said to me. I think it's very uh, important. Uh, 
he said to me in the interview in 2021, July, uh, the meaning and purpose of the field of memory is life, which is not money. There is a place in the field that we cultivate, but it is a more of a symbol and a metaphor. It's a reminder of the past, the present and the future, our identity and our connection to nature, history and culture. Forgetting all of these is a tantamount to that. So it allows us to continue to continue the right path. The Bible says that one cannot serve two masters at the same time, neither money nor life. We have chosen life and created a link between memory and life. So this is what field of memory. So uh, we understand actually uh, that this is like this is a place for you know a place for agglomeration of collective effects to convey meaning of liberated and decolonized life ways because they show it and the, the the place of field of memory by the way where it's constructed is just right in front of in front of the construction site Tav's construction site in Kiamonte area so yeah and also this uh, example i think tells us uh, why people reject the the emotions that were imposed on them fear anger uh, being in in a sad condition you know sorrow i would say that uh, very this area uh, we are talking about the valley uh, is highly militarized so everyday people has to, you know, encounter somewhere a civil police or um, a military force uh, while going, you know, while doing the daily activities in their lives without doing, you know, protests. So in this kind of atmosphere, in this kind of, you know, uncomfortable feelings that people have in the first place, they reject them actually, and they have the power to reverse uh, or let's say to change these uh, emotions into something more you know beneficial for the for their community such as hope such as caring but caring is not about you know caring the uh, loving the nature is not like you know is not like superficial thing here is a caring is political act and um you choose what to care and how and what kind of emotions, with what kind of emotions. So uh, we see that these people in uh, Jean Moore's uh, reference, uh, when she talks about organized abandonment, she also talks about this power of people that refuse to give up hope. So he, this is important in the colonial placemaking. They refuse to give up hope. Uh, and we we have to see um, what it entails, right? How it creates uh, this kind of places for people. And actually, uh, this is where it takes my argument into counter periphery. So this is something I, uh, by the way, coined, and uh, in my thesis, in my in one of the papers, because the counter periphery is 
something, the concept telling us to counteract the peripheral conditions that pre-existing, the pre-existing peripheral conditions that have been already, have been already there in the valley for all these years. You were um, referring back to the fact that people are sort of pushed to the margins by there are these big cities and big infrastructure projects in between them at, at the margins of those things, at the periphery of those things, that, that's where people are living. I mean, uh, yeah, of course, yeah, these um, people obviously marginalize not just geographically, but also economically, socially um, marginalization we are talking about. But also the conditions like in the region that uh, has such as underdevelopment, you know, lack of employment uh, opportunities and other, you know, infrastructural facilities. So... These are like pre-existing peripheral conditions Uh, and they play a big role, let's say, in today's grassroots movement because it's not people are not just against a simple one project. You know, this is uh, is beyond of that is beyond. We we need to understand like this historical uh, marginalities, how they are accumulated and how they are accumulated and exacerbated by these infrastructure projects, the new uh, infrastructure projects. So there's a sense of kind of people being at the periphery, at the edge, and the the, the kind of projects and initiatives piling up around them. So not just one thing, but over time, so lots more and more. Exactly. Accumulates, you know, accumulates. Yeah, it accumulates year by year because a, a one mega project is not just, you know, obviously it will be, it's enough for people to be against, but we need to see also behind the scenes, you know, behind the, behind this picture, what's actually there, what, what has been already there that annoying people and, uh, making people uncomfortable all these years and we need to analyze this so this is uh, what i have been uh, um, i have done in my thesis so far and uh, yeah being a counteract counteracting peripherality and putting them putting their problems into the core of the issue you know uh, their you know demands their problems into the core and they people try to you know develop alternative imaginaries of their region of their environment other than the imaginaries of of these mega projects and this is how uh, counter periphery they uh, it encourages the colonial practices in reshaping uh, you know life in general in everyday life and of course, this has a lot of you know effective uh, labor inside. Uh, the connections, uh, social bonds, place attachments. So I mean, these are very important. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it's this this sense of kind of not just focusing on what's happening in the present moment, but also looking back at the kind of histories of these places and 
how things have how things have developed over time, but then also uh, projecting into the future and thinking about, and that's where like hope comes into play, right? So mm-hmm. thinking about what might be and how things might be different. It sounds like those visions are very important to people, and they're not just some uh, some kind of um, feeling of hope that's disconnected to to everything else, but it's quite a practical uh, thing that sustains people. Um, yeah, and I thought it was interesting. Also, really interesting that you talk about care. You know, not just as a feeling, even though feelings are important, but as a as something that people do uh, practically that that is really like really makes a difference to people and and things around them yeah exactly so that's counter periphery in action now i focus on in my thesis more about peripherality peripheral context and uh, bringing that context into the core of the analysis and uh, try to find out what uh, micro uh, relations do and why they're important in this, let's say, story uh, of, of uh, mega infrastructure projects. Because in Suza Valley context, we see um, different backgrounds, for instance, Christian communities, anarchists, eco-anarchists, students uh, who come from also other uh, different you know, cities. And then we, we see um, also yeah, grassroots and other NGOs uh, near uh, surroundings. And then we see also middle class, working class uh, people. They're all mixed. They're all, you know, let's say melted in the valley to fight for a cause uh, or for, you know, in sharing common goods. Um, Thank you so much. Jansu, that was really, really fascinating to to hear about um, your work and about these places, Hasankif and uh, the Suza Valley. Just really, really interesting. And um, thank thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you very much for your invitation. Really, it was a pleasure for me uh, to talk about my research in, in a podcast uh, and um, for uh, for the future natures as well.